All right, so we are continuing the uh, biblical counseling um, course, and I think, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is where we left off. No? no. no? Before? Theology. Theology, okay. This one. All right, all right. We got your back. All right. Okay, um, so theology. Th- these are examples of systematic theology. If you remember the, uh, the pyramid diagram, Um, that you saw before the pyramid diagram um, shows really our foundation is the scriptures and then from the scriptures we have to have an accurate uh, way of interpreting the scriptures the right principles of interpretation that we call hermeneutics and then above that is what we call biblical theology that's essentially what you can learn about any given topic from a specific book and then when you put them all together you come up with what we call systematic theology and then from systematic theology we have practical theology you know, this is where we pull the nuggets of, of Scripture that we can apply into our lives. And I think it was a good question that was, uh, that was asked um, last time I went over this, um, is uh, the question of, do you need to know all of systematic theology before you counsel one another? And the answer is no. Um, so, I mean, for instance, as we went through the book of Ephesians earlier today, um, those commandments to that church is just as applicable to us today as it was then. Um, Really, the idea is that if you want to be able to help someone understand what the Bible says in its entirety about something, you want to have a view of systematic uh, theology. And so, for instance, as an example of systematic theology, these are just some examples that we have here. But when we start with theology, theology means the doctrine of God. Um, And when we say doctrine, that's the Greek word for teachings. So it's a set of teachings with regards to God. Um, Sometimes I hear people say, I don't care about doctrine, I just want Christ. Well, you're basically saying you don't care about what Christ taught. That's essentially what you're saying. Um, so, so I think it's silly when people say that, because if you care about the Bible being God's word, then you necessarily care about doctrine. And, uh, and I, I like what um, the, the late R.C. Sproul used to say about basically anyone saying that uh, you're all a the- everyone's a theologian. It's just a matter of whether you're a good one or a bad one. Um, the moment you say anything about God or Jesus Christ, you are making a theological statement. Okay, you understand that? Anytime you say anything about God or Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, you're making a theological statement, meaning you're making a statement about God. Um, so it is better to be able to make an accurate statement than it is to make an inaccurate statement. You know, so um, to say something like God wants me to be happy would be a theologically inaccurate statement. You can't point to any scripture in the Bible that shows that God simply just wants you to be happy. Now, you can point to some scriptures that say God wants to give you the desires of your heart, but he wants you to delight in him first, right? So, I mean, it's, we want to be able to provide a, a more complete picture that is helpful to people as we do biblical counseling. So, as an example of systematic theology, we've got theology, which is the doctrine of God. And we start off with God is triune. There is both the ontological and economical trinity. Now, those are big words. What does that mean? Um, ontological has to do with um, really the essence of being. Um, The idea that each of the three members of what we call the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we would say that they are all equally God. Okay, we we wouldn't say that one is more God than the other. So it has to do with their being. They all share in the same essence, um, as we would say. And yet uh, we also see an economical difference. And what we mean by economical, they have different functions. They have different functions. So, uh, for example... Um, It wasn't God the Father who came in human flesh to die on the cross, right? It was God the Son. Um, It wasn't God the Son who was was sent to seal us and, and um, and, and to give us gifts and to illumine our minds to the text. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. You know, and on the other hand, it was God the Father's plan with regards to redemption. So while we talk about the three parts of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we would say they're all equally God. We wouldn't say one is more God than the other or one's a lesser God, um, but they each have unique functions. Now, how does that help us with regards to counseling? Well, as you can see there, within the Godhead, there is both order and authority. Order and authority. Husband and wife, what does the Bible call that? When husband and wife come together, one what? One flesh. One flesh. You know, so you have a one flesh relationship between husband and wife, but even within that one flesh relationship, there is order and authority, isn't there? And within the Bible, I'm no more a member of the church of Jesus Christ than you are, and vice versa. And yet in God's order, there is order and authority within the church. 
right? I mean, the Bible says to submit to your elders, submit to those who are in authority over you within the church. So the church is organized as, as something that has order, order and authority. And it's, in this day and age, a lot of people rebel against this idea of um, order and authority. And it's probably because, you know, in our history, we've seen a lot of abuses of authority. We continue to see that today. Um, but just because there are abuses of authority doesn't mean the structure of authority itself is evil. It's the abuse of it that's evil. You know, so theology, just the doctrine of God, we know that God is triune. We see order and authority. Um, God is the creator. Um, so everything that we enjoy in this world was created by who? God. Uh, even something like this computer, yeah, this computer is, is, is an invention of, of man, but, but who gave man the gifts, uh, the, the ability, the, the intellectual um, capability to be able to arrive at this point? It was God. It was God. And um, 2 Corinthians, I want to say 2 Corinthians 4, let me see here, or 1 Corinthians 4, 7. First Corinthians uh, four seven. I don't have it up on the slide, uh, but First Corinthians four seven. If you can go there, Paul says this uh, to the Corinthian church. And if you're not there, you can just listen. First Corinthians four seven. Paul asks this question: For who regards you as superior? And pay attention to this. He said, "What do you have that you did not receive?" And if you did receive it, why do you boast as you had not received it? So in other words, what is it that you have that you did not receive? And the implication is that you received it from who? God. Okay, what in your life do you have that was not received from God? Yeah, everything you have was received from God. And Paul here is making the point that if you received it from God, why are you boasting as if you're the one that's responsible for it, right? So uh, realizing that God is the creator has a way of um, reminding ourselves of who gets the glory, who, who gets the credit for all things in our life. And there's nothing that we ought to boast about. And by the way, I'm just giving you examples here, right? I mean, as, as we look at the fact that God is creator, there are other applications that you can come up with with regards to biblical counseling. You know, for instance, you're going through trials. Maybe you're, you're worried about situations around you. Well, realize that there is nothing that's going on that was outside of our creator's control. There's nothing that exists in this world that, that came out outside of the Creator's control. And even, even John, the book of John, chapter 1, you know, Jesus Christ was directly involved with creation as well. John makes the statement that nothing was created, that, um, you know, everything that exists was created through Jesus Christ. And there's nothing that exists that was not created by Jesus Christ, right, or created through him. So God is the Creator. Um, that's what we learned, some of the things that we learned from theology. And there's much more that we learn from theology than just these lessons. Um, second is epistemology. Epistemology. And this is not a word that we would use very often. Um, epistemology is the doctrine of knowledge. And um, let me um, take a step back and, and, and help you understand that everyone in this world has a certain worldview. And what I mean by worldview, they, they view the world through certain truths. And, um, and people have different truths that they see in the world. And I'll give you an example. Um, someone who has a firm belief in evolution will see everything through the lens of evolution and will try to explain everything through this idea of evolution. You know, well, evolution has a very specific worldview that says there is no God, essentially. Now, they, they might debate that, but, but essentially evolution starts off with this idea that there is no God and there is no proof of God. So we're going to try to explain everything by natural causes. Uh, well, we as believers, uh, as you read the Bible, we understand that that's foolish. Everything comes from God, right? God is a creator. We just saw that. So our epistemology, our, our doctrine of knowledge, our worldview starts off with what the Bible says is true. All right, so epistemology, that's the doctrine of, of knowledge. And the first point there is that God defines what is reality. God defines what is reality. Um, this is important because a lot of people will define reality in different ways than what the Bible says it is. And, uh, you know, let me give you just a simple example. Um, we've been around or you've been exposed to or have heard of people that are hallucinating, right? And people that hallucinate imagine things that are not real. Right. And so there is a difference between what someone thinks is real and what and, and what reality really is with regards to a situation. Even if two people, let's say let's say one person imagines another person, um, uh, you know, assaulting him 
or her. Uh, one person imagined assault and the other person says that never happened. You know, you, you take it into the court of law, you know, what, what's a judge going to do? A judge going to try to get at the truth, right? Is there any video, um, is there any video evidence of what, what happened? When did this happen? Was there anyone that saw it? And they're trying to get at the truth. And it doesn't matter if someone is convinced that they were assaulted. If it was something that was imagined in their head and the judge <laughs> deems that that didn't happen, then they're going to favor the person that said there was no assault. So God defines reality. So as we see the world around us, we want to be able to interpret it through the lens of the Bible. You know, when we, we see the world and, and people start making all these statements about evolution, well, we can go back to Genesis 1 and see that everything was created by God. You know, and according to the Bible, I would, say, I would believe that everything was created in six days, right? Um, despite what, uh, what science may claim or, or say. So God defines reality. Now, another implication from this is that only God sees, sees the whole picture. Only God sees the whole picture you're going to get a lot of mileage out of this in counseling. You're going to get a lot of mileage out of this if, if you remember this truth, because when you go through difficult times, one of the greatest temptations we're going to have in our heart is to ask why. Why, God, are you doing this? And by the way, I forgot to mention it. Steve Reeves is back home tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. Praise God. I was just thinking about that because I'm thinking about, you know, the difficulties that he's gone through over those these past two weeks. And I'm sure it's going to be, you know, anyone going through that situation and anyone in Julie's position would be tempted to ask why. I'm not saying she did, but it, that's the temptation that, you know, you want to ask why. And only God sees the whole picture. You, you know, if you imagine being um, Joseph, for instance, in the book of Genesis, right? Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. You know, he, 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 became, he became the favored servant of Potiphar, um, and then he was falsely accused of um, basically sexual assault. You know, and then he had to spend a couple of years, a few years in prison. And really from the time that his brother sold him into slavery to the time that he was finally exalted by Pharaoh was a period of 13 years. You know, it's easy to go over that and, and not realize how much time has passed, but that's 13 years. And then when you account the seven years of abundance followed by the seven years of famine, it's at least 20 years, probably 22, 23 years from the time they sold him into slavery to the time that Joseph sees them again um, coming into Egypt. Um, but you can imagine in Joseph's position, it's very easy to ask why. Why, God? Why are you doing this? And in fact, this is what blows my mind if you think about this. Why did his brother sell him into slavery? Jealousy, Jealousy right? But, but what action triggered it? There, there was a specific action that triggered it. He was the favorite. He was the favorite, but what? The dream. He told his brothers about the dream. The dream that the brothers, you know, and even Jacob would bow down to him, right? Guess who gave him the dream? God. God is the one that gave him the vision. Now, some people say, well, Joseph was stupid to share that vision. Well, if God gives you a vision, you share it. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't just keep it yourself. God specifically gave him the vision. And you know what God's intent was? God's intent was that he would share it. And God's intention that when he shared it was the exact thing that happened, that they would get so jealous that they would sell him into slavery. Jealousy, yeah, yeah it's, it's because of jealousy. You, you know, it's amazing. Um, Genesis 50, 20. Let me, uh, let me read that for you. Just write that down. Genesis 50, 20. 5 0 2 Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. At the end of it all, when the brothers and, and Joseph, after, after the father Jacob um, dies, the, the brothers are worried that Joseph's going to take revenge, right? And then they come before him and, and they're like, like, please do not, you know, do not judge us. And, and we, we're sorry. And, and, and guess what they're doing? They're bowing down to him. I mean, that, the vision actually came true multiple times through the book of Genesis. They're bowing down to him. And uh, Joseph said, do not be afraid for, am I in God's place? In other words, am I God? And then in, in verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me. Uh, there's no question that they were responsible for their actions. You meant evil, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. At any given time during those 20 plus years, from the time that he was sold into slavery to the time that he made that statement, um, and, and this would have been well over 20 years because by this time Jacob had died. Uh, but by this time, you know, you think about any, any time in between those two periods, 
you know, Joseph could have been asking why and probably asking why multiple times. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And yet at the end, he knows exactly why it's happening. At the end, he's able to think back to, you know, and this is where we're having an understanding of the entire Bible really helps because the promise to Abraham, you know, the promise to Abraham was that his descendants, his descendants would be in a country that did not belong to them and that God would go and deliver them from that country. And also God had promised that he would make him into a great nation. And guess where it was that God made the Israelites into a great nation? It was while they were in Egypt. You know, so, so in other words, God gave this vision to Abraham that your, your descendants are going to be a great nation. But they're going to be in a nation that does not belong to them and I'm, I'm going to rescue them. And how does God accomplish that? By first giving a vision to Joseph. And Joseph's going to reveal it to his brothers. And the way God accomplishes what he seeks to accomplish is by the sinful reaction of his brothers. God is in control of it all. He is in control of it all. So he, he is the one that sees the whole picture. And so what I'm trying to say is that sometimes in the midst of these difficulties, we don't know what God is attempting to accomplish. I, I shouldn't say attempt, what he will accomplish. We don't know what God's going to accomplish from that. And we might not know in this lifetime. You know, when Romans 8, 28, and, and that's a memory verse everyone should have, Romans 8, 28, for we know that um, all things come together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. The, the good, you might not know what the good is until the end times, you, you know, until, until Christ returns and, and sets up his eternal state. We might not know until then, you know, but you have to trust that God sees the whole picture. And then see if you are a counselee, want a sound mind, you must see things as God sees them and define them as he does. If you want a sound mind, you must see things as God sees them and defines them as he does. You know, we have this um, term delusional, right? You're delusional. In other words, you're, you're, not, you're, you're not perceiving reality correctly. And guess what? Anyone who does not perceive things the way the Bible portrays them is delusional. It's delusional. And so it's not up to God to try to meet us where we want to be. I know that saying happens a lot, meet them where they are. Well, God doesn't necessarily just meet us where we are. He expects us to meet him where he's at. You know, he expects us to know him and to understand him and to, and to interpret reality the way he portrays it to us. So that's epistemology, the doctrine of knowledge. Um, and then we go from, by the way, any questions on that? Does that make sense? And then we go from epistemology to anthropology. Now, this is, um, this is an example of one of those topics that man has a version of anthropology and the Bible has a version of anthropology. And guess what? They're not the same. And this is one of those, those distinct examples where if you were to study worldly anthropology, and anthropology literally means uh, the, the, the study of man, um, if you were to study worldly anthropology, it very much has in it this whole idea of evolution, where we came from. You know, this idea that, and, and by the way, that has changed over time. You know, I, as far back as I can remember, I, I remember seeing diagrams of, of us evolving from fish. And then later it was us evolving from, from apes. And then later it was a chimpanzee. And now it's like some common primate, right? So, so they keep changing it. They keep changing it. So, uh, you know, not to make a pun, but evolution itself has evolved, you know, it continues to change. But the Bible does not change. It does not change. So worldly anthropology is based upon man-made ideas and thoughts and teachings that start that start with the presumption that God does not exist, that God did not create. All right. But the Bible does not make that assumption. And also a lot of man starts starts with the idea that man is basically good. How often have you heard people say, I'm a good person? Well, I'm a good person. I'm a loving person. And I hate to say this. Usually when someone has to make a point to tell me that, I don't find them to be that good of a person. It's just, you know, that just happens, happens a lot. But you have a lot of people say, I'm, I'm a good person. And everyone in their heart believes that. I think we all do. Yeah, we, we, we all do until you read the Bible and you realize that you're not. Yeah. So this is one of those examples where the Bible corrects my view about myself. And I mentioned it this morning in this morning's sermon, but the more I grow in my knowledge of Scripture, the more sinful I recognize that I am. The more I recognize how much I needed God in my life to, to be rescued from my sin and, and for the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in sanctifying me. 
So we know that for the doctrine of man, he didn't simply evolve from a common ancestor or from a chimpanzee or a monkey or a fish, but he was created in God's image. He was created in God's image. And only man is created in God's image. You know, I'd mentioned this before, and I, I may have upset some, peop, some pet lovers, okay? But, but man, and only man, is created in the image of God. And so man has, has innate value that the rest of the animal kingdom does not. Okay? Uh, man was created to have dominion um, over all of God's creation. So, God is, so man is created in God's image. So man is not an animal. Number two, man is not a victim. Man is not a victim. Okay, now, I'm getting some funny looks from some of you. Man is not a victim. Well, God, we're created in God's image. We're created to have dominion. Um, in general, we would say that, uh, and when I say man is not a victim, a lot of people will view themselves as victim of their circumstances, victim of, of uh, sometimes God, victims of, you know, whatever it may be. There's a whole victim's mentality that um, goes with, um, with a lot of people's thinking today. And yeah, and, and this is not to say there's no such thing as victimhood. So I mean, when when someone abuses another person, you know, there there's a victim there. There's a real victim there. You know, if um, if someone is raped, there's a real victim there. Um, but what we're saying is, man is not created to to be a victim. In fact, man is very much the opposite. Man is the one who has rebelled. Man is the one who has sinned. Man is the one. Man is the one who who has transgressed God's law. Who has broken God's law. And that's going to be important, too. You know, you, you come up, you know, when you sit down with people and, um, and, and first apply it to yourself. But when you sit down with people and talk to them about their issues, um, a lot of times you will detect um, kind of this, uh, th this presumption that I didn't deserve what happened to me. I didn't deserve what happened to me. But if you have an accurate biblical anthropology, let me ask you this. What was it that we ultimately deserved? Death. death. And not just any kind of death. What kind of death? eternal yeah and in fact you can categorize it as eternal and spiritual not just physical right physical spiritual eternal it's it's we we deserve the worst kind of death and so when you think about it that way that's exactly what we deserve anything less than that is nothing compared to that right so if we deserve the worst punishment that god could possibly give a person then we're in no position to say that we didn't deserve any of the things that happened in our life right Right. So in that sense, man is not in that sense, man is not a victim. Um, we are sinners and, and we are getting, uh, in fact, really in the mercy of God, we're not even we're getting a lot less than what we deserve. Uh, man is not a God. Man is not a God. Um, there there was a book a while back called uh, The Secret. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. The Secret, you know, and um, the, the secret um um, taught you and it was it was all this kind of gnostic mystical thinking but what the secret taught you and, and it was often categorized with christian books if you went to the bookstore i think it was a best-selling book for at least a, a year but what the secret taught you is that you can speak anything into existence that whatever you want you you just you you just you you, you speak about it as if you have it you, you assume that you're going to have it it's it's basically almost like a prosperity name it and claim it kind of theology you know, this idea that whatever you want, if you think about it enough, if you think about it hard enough, if, if you think about when you go to sleep, if you're dreaming about it, if you're really intent on having it, you can make it, make it happen. And that's, that's really, you know, portraying man as like a, like a God, that you have this, this kind of power. Um, we have to recognize that there is only one God. Only one God, right? You, you know, it's, um, if you read through the account of Elijah on Mount Carmel, Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, right? And, but before he confronts the prophets of Baal, he talks to the Israelites and he says, okay, let's, let's have a contest. He says, let's have a contest. You sacrifice to your God and, and see if he responds. And then I'll do the same. I'll sacrifice mine and see he, what he, if he responds. And he says something interesting. The one who responds, that is God. And Elijah is basically, basically saying, guess what? There's only one God. And guess what? What this competition is going to prove is which one is actually God. There is only one God. So man is not a God. We are creating the image of God, but we are not a God. Uh, man is not autonomous. Man is not autonomous. And, and I think this is, this is really difficult for especially people here in the U.S. Because America, more than any country that I've been in or, or I know of, really stresses independence. Be independent, right? 
be, be in charge of your own, de- you know, control your own destiny. That's, um, um, what's, where, where did that uh, quote come from? Invictus or something like that? I, I can't remember the person's name. But anyway, being, you're in control. You're, I'm, I'm the captain of my own destiny, right? Um, this idea that you control your own fate. And there's a lot of motivational books that will try to teach you that. That you control the circumstances. You control your own fate. No, you don't. God controls your fate. We are not autonomous. We are in the hands of God. In fact, um, in the, um, I want to say the 1700s, when the Great Awakening happened, there was an event called the Great Awakening where there was a number of preachers that were going up and down the, um, the eastern coast of the U.S., and people were just being saved in massive numbers. Well, that, that was partially started by um, a sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards called um, In the Hands of an Angry God. In the hands of an angry God. And that sermon basically portrayed the fact that you are not in control. You are in the hands of an angry God. And at any moment, he, he can just let go of you and put you into the lake of fire for all of eternity. And it was, it was a message that he gave. And I, I think it was in a baseball field. And the people were just on the ground just crying and screaming for mercy. Wanting mercy from God. So that they were realizing that they were not autonomous. Um, C, directed by his heart. This is where change is necessary. So what this is saying is that man is directed by his heart. And I talked about this, this this morning. If you heard the message this morning, I talked about the mind and the heart. Remember that? And you need to inform the mind, in order, and the mind informs the heart. And in the heart, we portray that as where your feelings and emotions and attentions and thoughts are. And But it's it's the mind where you understand truth that informs that. Um, so they're, they're connected together, and that's where the diagram comes in. So you see this diagram that looks like this. You see this diagram that looks, at, looks like this. And we'll slowly walk through this diagram to help you understand what it is we're looking at. Um, so there's a little dotted line at the top. And you see uh, the, uh, on one side of the dotted line is the outer man. And on the other side is the inner man. Okay, man is what I would call a dichotomy. You, you have what's physical and you have what's spiritual. All right, well, what, uh, what can be seen on the outer man and what's happening on the inner man. And the first thing I want to point out is behavior. Um, so I, I mentioned Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, and I have it here on the screen. Um, this was Jesus um, addressing, the, um, addressing the Pharisees, and I, I believe this started off with the Pharisees challenging why do his disciples um, not clean their hands, or, or why did their disciples, basically challenging something that they did. Jesus eventually confronts them about their traditions, and then you get to verse 20, and he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For within, out of the from for from within, out of the heart of men proceeds the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Now, if you think about the implications of this carefully, this goes very much against worldly thinking. Because worldly thinking says, if I got angry at someone else, that made me angry. If, if, these, if these kinds of characteristics came out of me, there was something in the environment that, that brought it out of me. You know, like, for instance, uh, we, we often portray anger as something that's building up inside of us. And, and it's, it's because of something happening outside that's causing it to build up. Well, what this quote is saying is that, no, it's not coming from the outside. It's coming from the inside. It's reflecting what's in your heart. It's reflecting pride. You know, so all the all the things that that defile the man are not the things that come from the outside. It's it's what comes from the inside, and that's that's his point. It's it's our heart that's corrupt. It's our heart that needs to be addressed. And so, while man would like to think that man is basically good, and his environment is is what corrupts him, what God says, no, it, you're the one that is corrupt. You started off corrupt, and and in, any any evidence of corruption originated from your own heart. It originated from your own heart. And then the other verse I have here, Matthew 12, 34. um, This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees saying, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak of what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. All right, so the point is that um, that, that, that your heart has proven you to be evil. You know, what, what comes out of your mouth is simply just a reflection of what's in your heart. It's not a reflection of something that's happening outside to you. It's coming from your heart. Now, any questions about this? I got one. Yep. If we're made in his image. Yep. And this comes out of our heart. How is that in his image? It's not. So we are made in his image, but sin has corrupted that image. Okay. Okay, so it has tainted that image. 
Right, right. Which is why, I mean, think about this morning, the renewing of the mind, right? God calls us to renew the mind. And uh, Romans 12 says, do not be uh, transformed by the world or do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And um, Romans 8.28, that's a great verse on sovereignty that says, For all things come together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. The very next verse, verse 29, says that you've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. So there's a, there's a process of, of transformation where we're becoming more and more like Christ each day. And we're getting closer to that image. Good question. Good question. Any other questions? All right, so that's the behavior. And, and what I'm trying to prove here is that behavior that, that, that people see on the outside is really just a reflection of what's going on in our heart. It's a reflection of, of our heart itself. And so the next uh, set of verses here, um, this is within the inner man before it comes out to the outer man. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the spring, springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So this is, once again, recognizing um, that, what, uh, that, that your heart is, is what controls you. Your, your heart is, is what controls what comes out of you. And you're to watch your own heart. You're to check your own motives. And watching over your heart, I mean, this is, this is good counseling. <clears throat> Sorry, what, what's the question? Okay. Uh, this is um, this is good self counseling. Um, this is why we want to be thoughtful before we say something. Um, if I say something out of just a knee jerk reaction, um, you're going to get what's uh, what's what's in kind of the the corrupt part of my heart. Um, but if I think about it and, and I apply God's wisdom to it, I can counsel myself and say, you know what, that that's evil, that's evil, and um, and I and I you know I, I shouldn't say things like that because it doesn't it doesn't cohere with reality. Um, so. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And then Proverbs 23, 6 through 8. Uh, Do not eat the bread of a selfish man or desire his delicacies. For as he thinks within himself, so he is. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel you have eaten and waste your compliments. Um, so this is just saying that even someone can say something, but in their heart they're thinking something else. And we've, we, we've run across this in our lives, right? Someone will pretend to be nice, but really they're in their heart. They, they've got, you know, they've got other motives uh, going on. Um, so it all, it, it all happens in the heart. And, and ultimately the heart is going to reveal itself. Ultimately the heart reveals, reveals itself. All right. And then the next here is, um, is, is this idea that I want to establish that the heart is our mission control center. So that the mission control center that, uh, you know, that, you know, you, you can kind of understand that, um, that that analogy. That's where everything happens. That's where, where everything is processed. And we have a number of verses there to show that our heart is the mission control center. Genesis 6, 5, which um, was the height of evil in this world. OK, this was just for the just for the, for the great flood it says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, God sees to the heart, right? I mean, that's um, when, when Samuel, you know, when Samuel was looking for the second king of Israel, he, first he had picked Saul. Saul was the king that Israel wanted. Uh, but uh, but, but God, God said, okay, go to the house of Jesse, and, and I'm going to show you who the, the real king is supposed to be. He goes to the house of Jesse, and he sees all the brothers of David. He's like, oh, for sure it's that one. Oh, for sure it's that one. And it's not that one. Oh, for sure it's that one. No, it's not that one. And what does God say to Samuel? He's like, like look, man judges on the outside. I see to the heart, and I'm going to give you a man after my own heart. And that ended up being David. Um, Proverbs 20, verse 5. And that's also up here. A plan in the heart of man is like deep water, uh, but a man of understanding draws it out. And then uh, Jeremiah 6.14, and, and these are all written right on the diagram. Jeremiah 6.14, they have healed the brokenness of my people superficially saying, peace, peace, but they, there is no peace. You know, so the, Jeremiah, the, the, in the days of Jeremiah, the prophets at that time were false prophets. You know, and they were, um, they said they healed the brokenness of my people. The idea they, they healed the, 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 the brokenness, really the brokenness is really in their heart. The problem was in their heart. Um, but they, they give them false counsel saying peace, peace, when really there is no peace from God. 
Yeah, yeah, and this is, um, we see this happening today. So I heard someone mention the name Joel Osteen. And I, can't, I hate to keep bringing him up, but he's such an easy example. Um, I mean, Joel Osteen, when, when he teaches, he does not teach in a way that forces you to confront your own sin. He, he does not teach in a way that forces you to see that the issues that we have in this world is a result of the sinfulness of mankind. And that's why we need to recognize that sinfulness. We need to repent, and we need to devote ourselves to following Christ. You know, instead, his, his uh, mantra is God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be this. God wants you to be that. Uh, but he can't go to any verses to actually back that up. And by the way, when we're talking about systematic theology, you know what he does? I, and, and this is just, I, I've watched, I don't know, maybe three different uh, sermons of his. And, and I noticed the same pattern. And, and it, you know, maybe it's just these three. But I noticed the same pattern that in each of these three verses, most of the verses he's pulling out is from the Old Testament. And remember I told you about systematic theology? You need to see things in context. You know, he, he's pulling out verses from the Old Testament that give promises to the nation of Israel uh, of restoration and how God wants, wants to do good to them and things like that. Well, that, there's a problem with that. You're, you're taking promises that were made to a specific group of people in a specific time under a specific covenant, and you're just applying it to everyone. You know, that's taking it out of context, and that's where systematic theology, having an understanding of, of really God's overall redemptive plan. And Terry just got through uh, teaching progressive revelation, this idea that not all revelation was revealed at one time, but over a, a period of time, God revealed more and more of his plan until you got to the New Testament, and, and we have what we have in the Word of God. Uh, realize that what was revealed at that time was not the complete picture. You know, so that, that's why we want to know the full counsel of God. We want to understand um, all the scriptures. Uh, more verses. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. 17, 9. 17, 9, and right there in the screen it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I left out verse 10, and verse 10 basically says, The Lord understands the heart. You know what that means? God actually understands your heart better than you do. Yeah? And that's why I've said this a few times when people say, well, God knows my heart. That's not a good thing. All right? Because there's, there's a lot of evil there. Now, granted, okay, let me, let me back up a moment and point this out. If you have put your faith into Christ, you have received a new heart. But, but you, still see, you still see the corrupt nature within you. Uh, sanctification doesn't just happen overnight where suddenly you're, you're, you're like Christ. You know, God, by his grace, will rescue you from a lot of sins initially. I think the experience of a lot of people is that you confess Christ and suddenly a lot of desires that you had just disappear. But not all of them. And with all of us as, as believers, everyone that I know, there, there's always certain sins that we struggle with more than others. You know, so we haven't arrived. And Paul himself even says, look, I haven't arrived, but I, I press forward towards, towards that prize. I think that's in the book of Philippians. Um, so we, we press forward recognizing that we haven't arrived. And there's still parts of our heart that if we, if, if we turn off our mind, you know, if we turn off our mind, that, that, that corrupt nature comes out very easily. When, when we stop communing with God, that corrupt nature comes out very easily. I mean, I, I know for Alice and I, when... We have the pleasure of traveling and, and whatnot, and we're, we're doing various things. Sometimes, you know, just the nature of our travels, we, we might miss church on a Sunday, right? And, and, but when we come back two weeks later, we miss it. I mean, we feel the effect of not, not communing with, with the rest of the body of Christ. You know, even though we can be in prayer every day, we can be in the Word and all that, but there, there is something, there, there is something, uh, there, there's a blessing that, that God gives us just from being with the body of Christ. There's a spiritual refreshment that, that comes from that, you know, and so recognize that when we're, when we're not doing things according to God's way, when we're not applying ourselves to, to following after Jesus Christ the way he has called us to, more of that corrupt heart starts to come out, you know, and this is unfortunately the problem with a lot of Christians who maybe haven't been very well taught. Uh, maybe they're at a church that's not really going that deep. Maybe that, that church is just preaching the gospel every single week. But when they're not very well taught, they don't understand these responsibilities that we have. And they, they kind of plateau. And they're not necessarily growing. And so we don't want to be like that. Ephesians 2.3, this should be very familiar. I've been mentioning this almost every week. Ephesians 2.3, Paul says, Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, children of wrath, even as the rest. Now that verse mentions the mind, not the heart, but the mind informs the heart. 
the, the mind informs the heart. That's what we saw this morning. And by the way, with, with this diagram, inside the heart, you, you see I've got affections, feelings, intentions, thoughts. Those are all in the heart. Okay, that, that, your thoughts, your intentions, your affections, your feelings, your desires, that all reflects what's inside of your heart. Idols are revealed from your affections. All right? And, um, and I've, I've heard described before, and I thought this was helpful. An idol is anything that you're willing to sin in order to get, and also you're willing to sin if you don't get it. You know, you're, you're willing to sin in order to get, and you also sin if you don't get it. Um, so there, there's all kinds of idols being produced in the heart. Now, I've got here that the Bible and the Spirit sanctifies. Um, Hebrews 4.12, uh, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we got to recognize that the word of God knows your heart better than you do. I just said that God knows your heart better than you do, and you, you all nodded your head. Well, the word of God comes from God. And we're blessed to be able to have the word of God that knows your heart even better than you do. You want to know more about yourself? Learn more about the Bible. Read God's word. Study God's word, and you will understand your heart even better. And then the next verse, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. We just went over this this morning. Um, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And remember, once again, the mind informs the heart and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we have a responsibility. And let me remind you, you know, verses 22 and 24 you don't necessarily see it in the English, but in the Greek, these are past actions. This already happened. You've already put off the old self and you've put on the new self when you confess Jesus Christ. When, when, you, when your old self died and you were, you were born again spiritually. All right. But verse 23, that verb tense assumes that you're continuing to do that. You're continuing to renew your mind. This is progressive sanctification. Uh, when I say progressive sanctification, that means each and every day, uh, really over a period of time, you should be becoming more and more like Christ. And uh, let, let me say this. It doesn't mean that every single day is going to be better than the prior day. But over a period of time, you should be getting closer and closer to Christ. You know, it's kind of like uh, when you look at those um, stock market graphs, right? You know, if the economy is, is gradually increasing over a long period of time, you will notice that there are periods where it goes down, periods it goes up, periods it goes down. But for, for the most part, it's, it, it, it's continuing to go up, right? And, and we, we know that because even now the stock market is essentially higher than it had been in previous times. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, so we see this uh, truth in Ephesians that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Uh, Romans 12.1, I had this um, up this morning as well. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. By the way, who, who, how many of you are doing the read the Bible in a year, following that five-day reading plan that uh, I gave out? And even, even if you're not, you're, you've, you're probably pretty close to the book of Leviticus, right? If you haven't gotten to Leviticus already, you're going to get close, close to it. And Leviticus, the first seven chapters are devoted to what? Animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices. You, you know, God told Moses to build the tabernacle. And at the very end of Exodus, the tabernacle is built. And then right after the tabernacle is built, God says, okay, when you come to me, this is how you're going to come to me. With sacrifices. With animal sacrifices, this idea that they need a continual atonement for their sin. Um, but what I, I'm pointing that out because Romans 12, 1, Now, under the new covenant, you are to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. That is building off that kind of imagery that came out of Leviticus. So why do you study Leviticus? So you can better appreciate verses like this. That now, as New Testament believers, we are to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice uh, unto God. And... Sacrifices that are acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And Leviticus, the details, they, they go deep into what is acceptable and not acceptable, right? There's a lot of details in there that if you deviate from those details, that sacrifice is no longer acceptable. But now our bodies are presented as living sacrifices acceptable to God. But it's acceptable to God if you're, if you're obeying God, right? And verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So the more that you renew your, your mind with the will of God, the more you're able to, to prove what the will of God is, to understand what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You know, that's basically the, where, where we align our view of reality with what God says is reality. You know, we don't, uh, we don't just run with our own ideas. And then John 17, 17, that's in the midst of the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says, sanctify them in what? Truth. truth. And where do we get the truth from? Your word. Your word is truth. And remember that passage we looked at this morning in Ephesians, truth is emphasized in that passage. You, you renew your mind with the truth. So there's no way around it. it. It's the Bible. And I say the Bible and the spirit. Because the natural man, the, the, the Bible is not going to make sense to him. In fact, to him, it's going to look like what? What is it going to look like? Starts with an, it's a foolishness, right? It's going to look like foolishness. Um, so we also need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit helps to illumine those truths um, to believers. And the, and the Holy Spirit also is actively working within us um, to help affect that change. But it's not independent of us, right? When it comes to sanctification, we work with God. You know, we, 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 you know, this is why we have these commandments. This is why we have these letters. God is appealing to our will in order to obey what he has called us to obey. Okay, so that, that's uh, this uh, diagram. Does this uh, diagram make sense? Right. Is this helpful? Yeah. Okay, we're coming close uh, to the end of our hour, but I'll, I'll cover maybe one or two more um, of these topics. Yeah, and I have to share this with you. The, the first time I printed out that material, the, the first person to see it, and he's not here tonight, the first person to see it was David Wetchin. And, and David was going through, and when he got to the systematic theology part... <laughs> David goes, Pastor, there's a lot of ologies here. <laughs> he's, he's, he's funny. He's funny. So, homardiology, homardiology, it's, and, and homardiology, the, the word, uh, that the first couple of syllables there, that comes from the Greek word for sin. Um, so, homardiology is the doctrine of sin. And uh, just uh, a few words about uh, sin. Sin has a hereditary aspect. What do I mean by that? What, what do I mean that sin has a hereditary aspect? What do you guys think? We're already, we're already sinful. Why are we already sinful? Yeah, we, we inherited that sinful nature. Yeah, from Adam. So from, from the fall of mankind, um, all mankind from proceeding forth from that time inherited a sinful nature. And you can see that, um, we won't look at it now, but you can look at Romans 5.12 and the verses that follow that. Sin has a hereditary aspect. Now, why am I mentioning this? This ties into anthropology and this idea that man is depraved. Man is a sinner by nature. You know, we, we know that from the study of sin. Sin has a habitual aspect. Yes? Um, of the hereditary aspect, is that also because... God says in the Ten Commandments that, you know, a family sin is perpetuated from yeah. third and Yeah, I, I will visit, yeah, I will visit the, the sins of the fathers yes. to the third and fourth generation. That's a great question, and, and that's, that's how I interpret that passage. You know, it's not, it's not that, you know, the sins of the father will be punished upon the children, but the sins of the father, you, you see their effects to the third and fourth generation. And I, I mean, we see that in the world around us, right? I mean, um, oftentimes, more often than not, children learn bad habits from their parents. I, I've got a lot of friends who, who, who um, would, would curse the way their families are, and then they, as they got older, they, they start to resemble more and more of the very characteristics that they cursed. You know, so there is, um, there, there is a learned aspect uh, from that. Um, you, know, we, we, you know, and some of, that, um, you know, some of that is hereditary. Some of that is the way they're raised, right? Um, but, yeah, I, I think that's, um, that there is a hereditary aspect to that as well. Um, sin has a habitual aspect. And by the way, I think there was a spelling error on, on A on the paper. I said sin as a hereditary aspect should be sin has a hereditary aspect on the paper. I don't know if it's misspelled there or not. I, I saw that earlier today. Sin has a habitual aspect. Um, I, I know some of you have been going through the book of Romans. And, and what does Romans chapter 6 teach us? That we were once slaves to what? We were slaves to sin. You know, so this idea that we, we continue to sin, that we continue to rebel against God. So sin has a habitual aspect. And then sin has a personal aspect. What do I mean by personal aspect? Well, each and every person is responsible for the sin that they commit. 
each and every, even though, you know, you were born with a sinful nature, um, there, there is a habitual aspect in which you commit the same sins over and over, but you are also accountable for the sins that you commit. And why is this important for counseling? Because you want counselees, and, and as you counsel yourself as well, but you want counselees to take responsibility for their sins, take responsibility for what they've done wrong. And I tell you where this shows up most often is when you do couples counseling. When you do couples counseling. Uh, because the tendency in couples counseling is for the husband to point to the wife and the wife to point to the husband as the problem. But both are sinners. And, um, and, and I tell you what, I have never seen a couple's counseling situation ever get better when each person continues to point at the other person. Never. Ever. It never happens. It's not until each person is willing to look at themselves and say, you know what, I have a responsibility to grow in my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I have a responsibility to become more like Christ. I have a responsibility, and it doesn't matter if one is more to blame than the other. That's, that's the way things get better within counseling situation in fact i often say this to um, couples um, if if just one of you okay if just one of you were walking consistently with the lord um you actually wouldn't have an issue see now that's that goes against that goes counter to worldly thinking because the world thinks well it takes two well ideally we want both people um walking with the lord but if one person is walking with the lord then then they're, they're not returning fire with fire you know, they're not turning arguments into bigger arguments, you know, and that's, you know, and I realize that, that you know, that's difficult. You know, that, that's it. We, we're, we're sinners by nature, um, but we all have to take responsibility for our sin. And uh, one more, soteriology and Christology. Soteriology and Christology. This is the doctrine of salvation and of Christ. And I put them together for obvious reasons. Um, you can't talk about salvation without talking about Christ, and you can't talk about Christ without talking about the fact that he brought salvation. Um, so soteriology, the study of salvation, and Christology, the study of Christ. And first we say that Christ is the second Adam, the God-man. He is our model. So when we understand homardiology, the, the idea that we're sinners, right, that we, um, we inherited a sinful nature, um, that, that sin is, um, is habitual, but it is also personal, um, we recognize that we inherited from, from Adam, starting from the Garden of Eden. All right, but the, the, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he became the second Adam, meaning that as the first Adam, and you find this in Romans chapter 5, you can study Romans chapter 5, but that the first Adam brought sin into the world and death to the world, right, because of that sin. Well, the second Adam being Jesus Christ, he's the one that reversed it. Um, he brought salvation. And so our model is not the first Adam. Our model for life is not the first Adam who rebelled against God. Our model is the second Adam who is Jesus Christ. You know, we follow Jesus Christ, the God-man. Um, Christ was our substitute. Christ was our substitute. When I say Christ was our substitute, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? As a sacrifice. As a sacrifice, okay. For what? For our sins. For our sins. Okay, which, which means that once he was sacrificed for our sins, what did that allow God the Father to do? Starts with an F. Forgive, forgive right? That sacrifice on the cross allowed God to forgive you. Now, let me throw something out there that is very common in our speech and our thinking. You need to forgive yourself. You won't find that in the Bible. That is a worldly statement. And, and when a person says, I haven't forgiven myself for something, I will say to that person, it's not you who needs to forgive. It's God the Father who needs to forgive. And if you have put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith into Christ as your substitute for sin, and you still haven't, quote-unquote, forgiven yourself, you're basically saying Christ as a substitute was insufficient. And that God, as a God the Father who has forgiven you, is unjust. That you have a higher standard than God the Father. You want to say that? You really want to be able to say that before God? No. Yeah, some people will say that. You need to forgive God for this. I've heard people say that. Uh, what were you saying, Walter? Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, so here's the thing. Yeah, either you've been forgiven of your sin or you haven't. 
And when you start to say that I haven't forgiven myself for this, you're basically saying that God's forgiveness is insufficient. All right. And so that this is where you need to help bring yourself to the reality of God. Bring yourself to the reality of the Bible. Either he forgave it or he didn't. And if he forgave it, you need to align yourself with that reality. All right? And if he didn't, that's because you haven't put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you don't believe that he is a sufficient substitute for your sin. And um, Alice brings up a good point. Some people say you need to forgive God. Or I haven't forgiven God over this. I, it's okay to be angry at God. And, and, and uh, you know, over time I've, I've forgiven God. Well, you're not going to find that in the Bible either. God doesn't seek our forgiveness. He doesn't. All right? And again, this ties back to understanding the fact that what, did it, what is it that we deserved ultimately? We deserved eternal punishment. So anything less than that is by the grace and mercy of God. There's nothing to forgive God about. You know, whatever circumstances he brought into our life are, are a far cry from what we truly deserved. You know, so once again, biblical thinking. So Christ was our substitute. Christ is our ascended Lord. Christ is our ascended Lord. What, what am I saying by this? Well, the one who died for you is the one who reigns from heaven. The, the one who died for you is the one who is up in heaven. He's reigning from above. Well, then why does evil exist? Because he allows it to exist for a time in which we can share the gospel with others. Because when he comes back, that second chance is gone. When he comes back and brings judgment, it's final. All right, so... He is our ascended Lord. We understand that he, though the world may not bow down to him, we bow down to him. We recognize he is our greatest authority. He is a greater authority than Donald Trump. He is a greater authority than any earthly ruler who has ever lived. You know, so ultimately we bow the knee to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that needs to show in our life that we worship him. And salvation results in a new life. I mean, we've been talking about this in Ephesians. Um, put on the, the new self, which was created in, in holiness and righteousness of the truth. Um, salvation results in a new life. Um, and this becomes important for people that are stuck in the past. They, they may have confessed Christ, but they're still stuck over sins that they have committed before confessing Christ. They, they still can't let go of what they've done in the past. And, and this kind of ties into the whole forgiving yourself and, and all that stuff. But salvation results in a new life. You know, God promises as far as the east is from the west, you know, he will not remember your sin. Right? You know, so we have to remember that we have a new life. But also we have a new life that comes with a new responsibility. You know, we want to live a life that glorifies him. That ties into what I've been preaching this morning. We have a new life with, with new responsibility. And now we're, we're called to, to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we have been called. So I'll go ahead and end it there. Is there any comments or questions? Yes. Maureen. I think um, frequently Satan uses this idea of uh, uh, not forgiving yourself, yeah. uh, viewing ourselves as being worthless, undeserving sinners uh, to yeah. destroy our That's a good point. That's a good point. And I, I, I think, I know I teach a women's class, but I think um, frequently women do that to themselves. Yeah. They, uh, they look at God and say, okay, you've forgiven me, but I know better. I, I That's know right. I'm not worth anything. I, I know I can't do anything for you. And this is Satan's lie. And we buy into it and we become ineffective. I, I think it's one of his most useful tools especially when he deals with women. Yeah, Satan, um, so the great point, Satan is the great deceiver. Um, was there another comment? Sorry. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Um, I think it's really important to understand our position in Christ. Yes. That as his children, he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Yes. Amen. Amen. Psalm 110, verse 4. You guys know Psalm 110, verse 4? And God has promised and will not change his mind that he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. That, that is one of my favorite verses in all of the Old Testament. And let me tell you the significance of that. So, I mean, both points, very valid points. One is that Satan is the great deceiver. Satan is the one that wants to believe these lies that, okay, I haven't forgiven myself, that I know better than God and, and whatnot. And, and Revelation shows that Satan is the one that brings accusations against the elect day and night. 
he brings repeated accusations. And you see an example of it in the book of Job, right? When Satan wants to bring accusations against Job, saying, hey, you, were, you remove those blessings from Job's life and he'll curse you. And that's, that's the premise of the book. It's to see if Job will actually curse him and he doesn't, right? Um, so yeah, there's this, there's this um, recognize that it's the scheme of Satan that wants you to think that you haven't been forgiven. It's the scheme of Satan that wants you to think that what God has done for you is not enough. You know, so we do have to recognize that Jesus Christ, part of our eternal security, and, and that, that statement is powerful, part of our eternal security is not only that the sacrifice that Jesus gave is good once and for all time, but that he is also sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us day and night. And you know how long that priesthood is going to last? That priesthood lasts in eternity. You know why God said he is after the order of Melchizedek? Because when you look at the Mosaic law, the priesthood was a Levitical priesthood. It was a Levitical, it was the Levites that were the priests of the Old Testament. And that started with the institution of the Mosaic law with the days of Moses, right? And that ended with Jesus Christ on the cross. So in other words, that Levitical priesthood, that's limited. It's only for a certain time. But Melchizedek, Melchizedek is a priest that existed outside of that covenant, meaning Melchizedek as a priest is, is a priesthood forever. And so when God says, and I promise you and I will not change my mind, it's not only a double promise. He says, I, I promise you and I will not change my mind. He is a priest forever. That is a third promise. And when he says Melchizedek, that is a fourth promise. It is a fourfold promise that Jesus Christ is always a priest interceding on your behalf. How good is that? Use that to counsel your souls. That's very good. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's why it's one of my favorite verses. And Melchizedek, you do a study of Melchizedek. You know, he is the only person in all the Old Testament, the only person, the only person in all the Old Testament who is both a king and a priest. The only one. The only one. And there could not be a king during the days of the Mosaic Covenant who could serve both functions. Because the king, the kingly line came from the line of Judah. The priestly line came from the line of Levi. And here is David, the one who knows and understands the law, and he's writing this psalm saying that this king, because it's no question he's writing about the future king, this king will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. He is going to transcend that Mosaic law. I don't know if David fully understood that, but as he was writing it, I mean, that is a magnificent statement, a magnificent statement that can only be fulfilled in Christ. Any other comments or, or questions? Sorry, I got carried away there, but... Yeah. Well, the, the, the idea, the, um, so going back to the Ten Commandments, um, God talks about how I will visit the, the iniquities of the fathers to the third and fourth generations. It's just the idea that um, sin is often learned from our parents. You know, I mean, for instance, if you have parents that are alcoholics and, and they don't change from that, chances are the kids will turn into alcoholics. You have parents that, uh, you, you have a father who's a physical abuser, there's a good chance that the son is going to turn into a physical abuser. You know, so that, that's, that's the idea. It's not, it's not that it's mystically passed on, but I, I think that there, there's a learned aspect of that. But there's also, um, in a sense, a hereditary aspect of that, because I'll, I'll give you an example. Look, some people are just naturally more prone to anger, right? True. Uh, so, so different people have different dispositions where they're more prone to certain sins. Um, I can tell you for, for my dad, he had a, he had a temper, and, and I, I did too. And I, I still, I have to watch myself. I have to counsel myself often when I, when I kind of feel that, feel, feel that anger in my heart um, coming up. Um, so there is, a, there is probably a hereditary aspect in that in which we have certain inclinations, but there's also learned behavior, I think. So it's the whole nature versus nurture kind of discussion. But, but that's just all to say that when God makes that statement, I think he's, he's acknowledging that the sins of the Father, you're going to see those same sins to the third and fourth generation. And the Old Testament is proof of it. It is, if you just read through the history of Israel, it's proved once they go bad, rarely do they, they come back and, and become good again. I would imagine that some of those are broken. You know, they, yeah, they, it, it can be broken. Right. Well, and, and God didn't say for all the generations. He said to the third and fourth generation. So, yeah, it, it, can, be, it can be broken, but for the most part it is learned. Uh, but, yeah, we, you know, with the power of God and Jesus Christ, we can break from it. And that's the other idea. Salvation results in a new life. We, we can no longer blame our parents for the way we are. We have a new life in Christ. We have the power to change. All right. All right. Um, Clark. Well, I just, you know, I mean, this is on the, the B, right? The Christ was the substitution, right? right? And yep. I think, you know, for like myself, right, as being a, a, you know, 
new believer in Christ yeah. that in our in my previous life I I ran on, and I lived on emotions. Right. You know, where today it's it's all factual. You know, and it's 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 learning this new way of life, which is you know it's not instantaneous. Right. I mean, it takes time. You know, you know, it takes time, and so you know we 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 try to you know I'm talking and I'm referring everything is coming from letting the past go, letting these old sins go, letting this new way of this old way of life go. Um, it doesn't, for me, it hasn't happened instantaneous. I hear it, I believe it, it's nice. I still don't, I'm still ruled by feelings. Yeah. You know? I'm still, you know, but as, and, it, you know, and it's like you say, it seems as the more I learn about the Bible, the more I learn the truth, the more I'm Amen. around other people that living in this lifestyle as being a, a Christian, um, the more I'm able to let that pass go, to let it go. And, and yet, and believe it, and believe it. testimony, it I mean, for my sin. Uh, yet another testimony of why the church is necessary. We need to be around fellow believers to encourage us uh, of these truths. That's why it says speak truth to one another in love, right? So we want to speak truth to one another in love. And it's not to say that emotions are bad, but in this world, we let our emotions dictate where the Bible tells us we need to let the truth dictate and our emotions will follow. It's a great book called uh, Facts and Feelings. Is that what it's called? Um, no, I'm sorry. Um, faith and, and Feelings. What's that? Feelings and Faith. There's a book called Feelings and Faith, written by a biblical counselor, a certified biblical counselor. I think his name is Brian Borgman. I want to say his name is. Um, feelings and Faith or Faith and Feelings. Excellent book that talks about how our faith and, and feelings come together, that, that you need to lead with your faith and your feelings will follow, and the Bible supports that. But what we do is we lead with our feelings, and then our faith follows our feelings, and it turns it into a shipwreck. All right, so um, great book. Um, that, that would be highly recommended. All right, um, any other comments or questions? All right, let me go ahead and close us in prayer.